Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Every week, HelloFresh creates new and delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. For 50% off of your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and enter the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. This episode is also brought to you by Sonos. Check out the new Sonos One speaker, play songs, check news and traffic, manage smart devices, and enjoy all those other helpful Amazon Alexa skills using a single Sonos speaker. Because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off of your Sonos order of $2,500 or less. Go to Sonos.com and use the promo code CANADA10. That's CANADA10. Once upon a time, we dreamed a dream about the internet. Here is how writer Jennifer Stisagranik put it, writing in Wired magazine. I believed in a free, open, reliable, interoperable internet. A place where anyone can say anything and anyone who wants to hear it can listen and respond. I believed in the hacker ethic, that information should be freely accessible, and that computer technology was going to make the world a better place. For better or for worse, we've prioritized things like security, online civility, user interface, and intellectual property interests above freedom and openness. The internet is less open and more centralized. It's more regulated, and increasingly, it's less global and more divided. That is from a piece called The End 
of the Internet Dream, which ran and wired in 2015. And since she wrote that, things have gotten much, much worse. It's not just the end of the dream. It's a total nightmare. I mean, it's one thing if Facebook is controlling the Internet in order to make money. It's something else entirely now that we know that countless unknown actors are using Facebook's data to control us. How did we get here? A decade ago, I too was a believer. I reported on the fight for net neutrality, for open data, open source, open access, for copyright reform. I still believe in those things, I guess, but Lord, I am discouraged. I certainly don't believe that the outcomes of those campaigns matter much. Does anyone? My guest today does. Ryan Merkley is the CEO of Creative Commons, the American nonprofit dedicated to expanding the public sphere by providing free and open licenses. If you don't know what a CC license is, it allows you to release anything that you want with a Creative Commons license that will let other people use it, share it, remix it, all while you retain your ownership of it. Before that, Ryan was an executive with the Mozilla Foundation, the nonprofit organization that makes the free and open source Firefox browser. Most recently, it has just been announced that Ryan is working with Google on their advisory board for Sidewalk Labs, Google's project to build their own neighborhood in the city of Toronto. How did we get here? We'll find out in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Roisin Beck, Francine May, Spencer Payne, Adrian Polizco, Maya, Christy Nash, Alexandria Bonney, and Nancy Payne. You know, I'm a journalist too, and I think it's important that journalists get reported on because we need to know how it feels. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of, organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, 
it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. This episode is also brought to you by our sponsor, HelloFresh. This is the time of year when I'm getting out of like a comfort food, gross potatoes and noodles kind of a mentality, and I want to cook. I want to cook with fresh ingredients. I want to cook for my family. I don't have time to cook as much as I would like to because cooking is actually not one chore, but a series of chores that begins with meal planning and grocery shopping and often ends with throwing out excess ingredient. And all of those chores get compressed into a 30 minute process where there's no waste when you use HelloFresh. Each week, HelloFresh creates new and delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. Everything arrives on your doorstep in a special insulated box. There is no food waste. If this sounds interesting to you, if this sounds like something worth trying, you will get 50% off because you listen to this podcast. And you can do so by going to hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and using the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. Also, this episode is brought to you by FreshBooks, who make ridiculously easy-to-use cloud accounting software for freelancers and small businesses. They simplify tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, getting paid online. They have drastically reduced the time it takes for over 10 million people to deal with their paperwork. That actually is extraordinary. 10 million people. This one Toronto company is the world leader in this kind of cloud accounting software for freelancers and small businesses. It is stupid easy to use. Tax time is a lot easier. And you can try it all out for 30 days, unrestricted, free trial. To claim this, just go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand and enter CanadaLand in the how did you hear about us section. Oh, and one last thing I want to tell you about the third episode of our medical series, DDX. This podcast we made for figure one is out. DDX is a podcast by doctors for doctors. Each episode is like 10 minutes and you get a real medical case. This week's episode is awesome. It is all about cannabinoid hyperemesis. I hope I said that right. It would be scientifically inaccurate for me to call this an episode about marijuana overdoses, but that's kind of what happens. Check it out. Go to figure1.com slash DDX. I became really intoxicated with this dream of the open internet in an interoperable internet in free information and the ability for new economies that it's not an anti-commercial thing for us to share. And not just as an ideology, but as an inevitability. I completely believe that. And my faith right now is destroyed. Interesting. It's destroyed. (laughs) And I'm not the only one. Like that just seems true. Yeah. I don't think I would disagree with much of that. Many of the industries that are dominating today are still the past. So I was reading a a piece last week about Spotify's IPO. Spotify is going to go to their IPO soon. And in there, they have to disclose their, their financials and their, their model. Spotify's business model towards profitability is largely focused on paying artists less and less and less over time. The line doesn't get to profitability unless they pay artists way less than they currently pay them. Even with massive growth, even with massive adoption of users, The reason for that is because sitting in the center of that deal is the label structure. So we built this amazing 
internet where you, the artist, can go directly to me, the consumer, and sitting in the center of it is this massive beast that takes up all the money and makes sure that at one end you have Spotify and at the other end you have the creator and neither of them are making very much money. So at one end you have Spotify. And the other end you have the creator and in the middle you have labels, the past. Yeah. The old structures that are holding, you know, it's the old structures that are extending the term of copyright. It's the old structures that are fighting for DRM to make sure that we can't take content wherever we want it and use it the ways we want to use it. It's old structures that sit in the middle of people who want to create, people who want to consume and denying them those opportunities. And so you get trapped in these ridiculous business models. Um, so I think that's part of it. So it's not Spotify's fault, you're saying, that even though their business model relies on increasingly diminishing what they pay to artists and what they pay to artists is sort of famously paltry, that's mm-hmm. the label's fault for trying to uphold an old system. And if it was just between Spotify, the artists, and the consumer, then we could figure this out. So I'm not going to give Spotify a free pass, uh-huh. but I would say that the structures that we have keep trying to impose themselves on the future. And so until we start to find ways to get out from under that, you're not going to have a better deal. I mean, so, you know, app makers going straight through the Apple store are getting a better deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least then we know what the deal is. It's what, 70-30? And they go direct. And so you don't have a, a publisher sitting in the middle of that. I'm not saying it's the whole problem, but I would definitely say that old structures trying to impose themselves in the midst of this are a huge part of the problem. That's a narrative that I'm pretty familiar with, these old dinosaurs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't account for some things. I mean, if Mm -hmm. you think of an ecosystem like Facebook, Mm -hmm. where the content, that problem that Spotify has of how we pay artists less and less and less for the content that this is all about Mm – Facebook pays nothing for its content. We make the content for Facebook. Yeah. And it's it's so twisted to see that that early starry-eyed idea of user-generated content, of breaking the media monopolies where we just have like three inputs just force-feeding us whatever they want to say. And in the future, we'll have people doing journalism and people sharing their thoughts and marginalized voices will have yeah. a say and we'll be talking about everything that doesn't get talked about and artists can go direct, et cetera, et cetera. And that all came true, mm-hmm. but it's all through Facebook. Sure. And we're just pumping content into their mill. There's no legacy industry prohibiting that ecosystem. Facebook has become exactly that legacy industry. Facebook is the advertising industry. So how do we deal with that? That that is beyond getting these old guys out of the way. That is an inevitability that feels like, oh, I mean, the Cory Doctorow quote that every pirate eventually wants to be a admiral. Mm -hmm. That Netflix, which opposed net neutrality, as they get bigger and bigger, that starts to be something that they might want to exert for their own business interests and meet the new boss, same as the old boss. I think there's a couple of pieces there. Um, So one, there's a prevailing conversation that we hear as we think about the modern, you know, what is the web we want to be on, especially for creators. And there's often this sort of derisive, oh, users won't pay for content. We hear that a lot. Users refuse to pay for content. Mm -hmm. Part of the thing that frustrates me around that debate is that in many places over the history of content consumption, users didn't really pay for content in the first place. The quarter you paid for the newspaper did not pay the writers. The advertisers paid for that. Mm -hmm. You know, even your movie ticket, you know, they were leaning hard on the concessions or magazines. You're, you know, if you were a subscriber, you're mostly paying the guy at the newsstand or you were paying... You know, it was advertising that covered this. And Facebook is very much the old model of content. It's funded by advertising. And 
Google is a giant advertising behemoth. Yeah. It's the business they're in. And no one really disputes that. They provide a bunch of services that people like and rely on. But at the heart of it is using data to be really, really good at showing you ads for stuff. So there's a, a conversation we have to have about if we want great content, some of that great content is going to have to be built by people who get paid. And how do we make that work? So you do that through people who become subscribers directly. You know, we briefly went to this model where it looked like we were going to be all we can eat through one one front door and Netflix kind of owned that. Yeah. And now it looks like we're going to go backwards 20 years where I'm going to have to subscribe to 20 different channels again to get what I want. I'm going to have to subscribe to Disney and HBO and Prime and Netflix and all of that. And so everything old is new again. Um, but none of that has the real conversation, which is how do I make sure that the artist I love has enough money to keep being the artist I love, not the platform that I use? How do I have that conversation? So the risk is, and to bring it back to your earlier question, the risk is that Spotify becomes the publisher and that we just invent the past out of the future. We are. Right. They, they will. Right. Or reinvent the future out of the past, I guess, is the way to say it. Right. That's what happens. You know, I've said a whole bunch of times, like, I would pay more for a service that on the artist page showed me how much the artist got paid and how much the publisher got paid and how much Spotify got paid. Has that been tried? I want Spotify to do it. I want to stop listening to Taylor Swift throw rocks at her record company and Spotify and say, I won't be on your platform because you don't pay me. I just want to see the numbers. Show me. Let's see it. And then let consumers decide, do we think that that's fair? What depresses me is a growing suspicion that this is how people prefer it. And for a number of reasons that even people who you think have the most to gain, be it artists in that kind of exchange, mm -hmm. or in the marketplace of ideas and the ability for marginalized voices to get a say, the internet that, that provides so much also disproportionately subjects those people to abuse. Mm -hmm. And if there's an unregulated free-for-all space, and you know, we recently talked about Reddit on this podcast, which Aaron Swartz and others founded yeah. and might be appalled by some of the stuff that's happening mm -hmm. on there. And now we have a lot of people who you think would want to keep things as free and open as possible in a different context going to companies and saying, regulate this space more. Mm -hmm. Basically a push for safety over freedom. Mm -hmm. That people would rather have a more of a shopping mall where things are kept kind of clean and somebody's looking over everything mm -hmm. for sometimes very legitimate reasons than having kind of like an open, wide, unregulated, open-air market where anything can happen. You're going to have a hard time instilling in everyone's heart that early dream, which seems to be fading, when it's possible people like their Spotify and they, they're happy to talk on Twitter if Twitter is safer. And they're okay giving all of their most personal information through Facebook uh, without mm -hmm. even an awareness of who owns it or what, you know, because they don't know what the liability is or why they shouldn't do that. I mean, how do you deal with the fact that this dream might not be shared widely? And there's a lot in that question. Um, Neil Gaiman uh, often says, when people tell you what's wrong, they're usually right. And when they tell you how to fix it, they're usually wrong. <laughs> um, I think it is true that the internet isn't the place we want it to be right now. And that the way we treat each other on the web feels sometimes so far removed from the way we would treat each other in person. And that that's the first thing I think about, which is the internet is real life um, and has become like a part of the place where we live. 
It's how we tell our stories. It's where we meet people. It's where people fall in love. It's how I connect with my mother. Like uh, it's become a real place. Yeah. It's not this sort of other place that I visit. It's not television. And we need to acknowledge that, and then we need to decide what kind of society we want it to be. Um, Dan Hahn wrote, wrote this really great article, uh, No One's Coming, It's Up to Us, kind of saying, "Let's. when are we going to have the conversation about, is the internet, is the web a place that we want to care about and treat like a society? Um, it's a global one, it's different, but it's a false equivalency to say that we can't have creativity and discourse and debate without Nazis. Mm-hmm. I think we could totally have both. And we just have to decide how to do it. And, you know, back to the Neil Gaiman quote, maybe regulation is part of that. Maybe platform regulation is part of that. Or maybe we're part of that. Or maybe it's all of the above. Um, I don't know the right answer, but I think we need to start caring about fixing it. And we need to start being more vocal about what we're going to do or more aggressive about what we're going to do if it doesn't get fixed. I don't need to see any more tweets to Jack Dorsey about how come there are Nazis on Twitter. Like, it seems to me that Twitter's pretty okay with Nazis being on Twitter so far. And so you don't feel like people should be pushing for more inter-Twitter regulation? I think that's a perfectly legitimate approach. Um, mm-hmm. What I'm saying is I'm not sure that we've gotten to the place where we've come to the consensus that this is a thing we're going to take care of. There's still a lot of Twitter should fix that. Oh, man, that's really awful the way that that woman that I know was completely abused by 100 people she's never heard of. Um oh, well, back to my cat pictures. Like, we need to take some ownership of the fact that this is our society. This happened in our public place. Like, these are our places. Yeah, I mean, I think if I understand your position, sure, ask Twitter to make a better service. They're a private company. Um, They can kind of do what they want, but you're their customer in a sense, so sure, make your demands. But understand that you don't own anything when it comes to Twitter. That's right. You, you are a citizen of the internet. Mm-hmm. And if you want the internet to be better, yep. you can do something about that. I agree with that. And I'll, I'll add a point to that. So about a month ago, I was at the Internet and Jurisdiction Conference, which was in Ottawa, which is um, a whole bunch of state actors and big companies like Facebook, Google, and others that were there. And then some civil society folks like us there to talk about, you know, can you govern this thing? And what are the most pressing issues that we need to think about in order to make it work the way we would like it to work? Mm -hmm. And the topic of the day was mostly around harassment and abuse. And what I heard loud and clear from the companies that were in that room was, regulate us, please. And the reason that they want that is because they will never subject themselves to rules that are not the rules that their competitors are regulated uh-huh. held to right because they are in the ad business and they want everybody in the ad business to be in the same ad business and so they're like tell us what the rules are we'll implement them but you've got to make it a level playing field and so that says to me that we can't just ask twitter to change their rules because in part for them to change those rules means to say we will be less competitive in our ad marketplace, which is the business we're in. If we decide to be more moral or more safe or more anything, then somebody can turn that into a competitive advantage against us. Fair enough. So say we track less data, which means our uh, ad targeting is less good, which means our et cetera, et cetera, right? So they're like, just tell us all the same. You tell us that we have to do data destruction after one year, great, but make everybody do it because I'm not going to volunteer to do that. I'm not going to make myself less competitive just because you ask me. 
it's actually just it, it makes it very clear, which is I know what their priority has to be, which I get it because that's their priority. And we need to decide what ours are because right now we kind of have none through government. So the citizens should not be appealing towards companies. Uh, they should be appealing to government to regulate. I mean, I think we have government. I think we have advocacy. I think we have uh, our ability to leave platforms that we don't like. I think. Well, we can hold on a second that. on that one. I mean, that was always, you know. I'm just talking about the list of tools at our disposal. I'm not. I'm not ranking their effectiveness. I know, but that one's become an important one. And that, sure. and that one in the early days when it was okay, you could be on Live Journal or, or, or I don't know, Angel Fire. You could have a GeoCity <laughs> site. You don't like yes. one, you know, go to the other. Yeah. yeah. As the internet becomes more like a, a shopping mall, I mean, it's actually in some ways more restrictive. There isn't a alternative to Twitter, really. There isn't an alternative to Facebook, really. Uh, there isn't an alternative to Google. These are integral tools to, I mean, from my perspective, doing journalism, mm -hmm. to uh, any business. You can't not use these things. And people are making demands of these private companies that perhaps sound more like the things that you would ask for from a government. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I feel like people – like the whole idea – I mean what we're here to talk about is the public sphere and the distinctions that, that used to be clear to me of what was a private sphere, a private mm -hmm. platform and the public sphere have kind of collapsed. Yeah. And I don't know that anybody even thinks about this stuff. Like, I think people just think that Facebook is where things happen in public and Instagram is where pictures go and yep. Twitter is where sentences go. And if you've got a problem, you got to talk to these companies and people just accept those terms. And the distinction yeah. between a citizen and a consumer is not something that people really consider. Yeah. And we're terrified to regulate them because 25 years of unprecedented prosperity on the Internet and everybody's afraid that if we touch them, we'll break it. And then all of that wealth will turn into a cloud of smoke. I mean – more regulation being advocated by somebody from kind of the net roots or the copy left. Like, you know, I remember more of a libertarian streak in that if we have open standards and such, that things will kind of sort themselves out. And it's more about just get out of the way. Uh, has your perspective in this evolved? Do you see that being the trend? I think that there are m many mechanisms that should be available to you. And I think that regulation is one of them. Um, I'm certainly not saying that, you know, we we need to regulate ourselves out of this. What I'm saying is, we can't be afraid to do nothing in that respect because I'm not a libertarian and I don't subscribe to the view that um, the whole thing sorts itself out, which the evidence I would provide is, you know, everything that's happening today. It's not sorting itself out. Yeah. Um, it's the Wild West out there right now. And for lots of people, that means it's really dangerous and their experience is horrible. And I don't think that's what we want. And so where we sit now doesn't feel good enough. Yeah. I would like us to do better. I think that there's room for regulation. I don't know what the right regulation is. So I'm still in the Neil Gaiman space, which is I know what's broken. You don't know how to fix it. I'm not sure how to fix it. But I'm pretty sure that doing nothing on the regulation side isn't ideal. Mm -hmm. It's kind of fucking depressing because it almost feels like we're throwing in the towel and accepting, okay, Facebook and Google are our new overlords. Let's mm -hmm. cut a deal with them. You know, like that's the new public sphere. So let's talk to them. You shared some thoughts recently about the sharing economy. Mm -hmm. And also this feels to me like how a lot of the early dreams have been co-opted and in the same way that user-generated content is now, you know, all Facebooks, mm -hmm. we have these apps, Airbnb and the Ubers calling themselves a sharing economy. And uh, I think you quite rightly called bullshit on that term that they have kind of stolen a term. There's nothing sharing about it. It's just commerce, pure and simple. You brought up our business model and I think you described it as subscription-based. It's not a traditional subscription-based mm -hmm. in that you – 
subscribe to Canada Land if you want to put it that way. Other, you know, some people have said, oh, uh, in a pejorative way, you take donations. I've kind of rejected that. Not that I feel there's any shame in taking donations, but I don't want to suggest that we're like actually a charity or, right. or a nonprofit. What I think is distinct, and we don't necessarily have a word for it yet, is this: it is a commercial relationship that Canada Land has with its patrons, for sure. where they are paying money to get a service, but we've removed an aspect of that very traditional transaction. A subscription would be, I pay for this magazine. I don't get it if I don't pay for it. Mm -hmm. You pay for Canada Land. It won't exist if you don't pay for it. Yeah. Maybe it'll exist if you personally don't pay for it, but people can understand and participate in a concept that is a little bit broader than that one-on-one -on -one exchange. It's yeah. like, well, if, if there's not that many of us, if we don't pay for it, it won't exist. So we'll pay for it so we can get it. We're paying for a service. And part of the value add is the sharing economy. Mm -hmm. Part of what they're paying for is that they're paying for it to exist and for other people to get it for free. Yeah, they're buying it for everybody. They're buying it for everybody. And I'm always just like, the fact that that is real kind of inspires me on difficult days, that mm -hmm. that actually is how we exist. Yeah. That model seems like it's a true sharing economy, and it seems consistent with some of these early, very optimistic ideas. Mm -hmm. I feel like where my idealism still lives is when I say this is a model that works and it could work for anyone. And then there are skeptics and critics who say, you are a rare unicorn. This is a freak thing that happened. It could happen for one. People might give Canada Land $5 a month, but they're not going to give an entire news ecosystem money on that basis. And I, I dismiss that entirely. I think people would. It's not actually happening. And I think it's more on the part of the fact that they don't have those options than that they're unwilling to do that. But why isn't it happening? Hmm. Why is this not a viable model that like, I mean, and I know that there are plenty of examples of other Patreons and other, like it exists, but it's, I don't know if you could call it an industry at this point or hmm. like a major trend yeah. within solving this problem of how creators get paid. My wife just finished uh, her first crowdfunding campaign. What's so, the project? Uh, she runs a project called Uncommon Women, which is about advancing leadership, advocacy, and uh, and mentorship for women in the open movement. Okay. Um, it's a fun project, and uh, she's been all over the world running panels and creating spaces for women to talk about this and to advocate for each other. And so first crowdfunding campaign. She got funded fully in 14 days mm -hmm. on a 30-day campaign, which feels amazing. On day 14, when she hit, you know, 103% of her goal, she was exhausted. Like, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and the skills required to be good at running a crowdfunding campaign or getting people to sign up for a Patreon are not the skills required to be really good at making a podcast or a coloring book or running an international project to advance the cause of women in the open movement. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's at the core of part of the problem. So I am a rare unicorn, is what you're saying. You are a rare unicorn. No, it's true. I, a lot of journalists yeah. I know are like, look, I just want to do journalism. Yeah. I, I can't do this Patreon crowdfunding entrepreneurial thing. That's uh, The money side of it is not my thing. Right. So it skews towards people who can play both yeah. or who can put together the team to do both, you know, to have one person do the journalism and someone else who's willing to go out and, and do that other side. Yeah. Um, it also means that people who are on their way up, there's nothing there for them. And so- Whoever's coming up behind Candle Land that's got great ideas and lots of talent but doesn't have that momentum unless, you know, there isn't an infrastructure for those folks. And so that's tough, too. We lack for that. So one of the nice things, I'll say a nice thing about record labels. One of the nice things about record labels is that they took a chance on people who were new. 
and they were willing to take a risk. And so, that was their ecosystem. Was it was always and, hunting, always hunting. Right, and so you know that's true of angel investors too. You know, yeah. the, the ratio you expect as an angel investor in companies is twenty to one. You're going to lose nineteen times. Yeah. You need somebody who's got the money to do that. You guys don't have the money to do that. You've got the money to put out a great podcast, and that's what you're going to do, and some stuff on the edges. But you definitely don't have the money to be doing A and R for the next ten great podcasts coming up behind you. Perhaps not um, for other people. We sort of play accidentally because we realize the Canadian media lacks any kind of talent hunting mechanism. We've noticed that just in putting people on the air yeah. who otherwise weren't heard we actually became the place where everybody turns to, to find new voices. Yeah. Um, so things yeah. happen kind of organically. And, and as much as that was like, Hey, that person, well, actually that's good that that happened. That's good. Well, I think Radiotopia has done that as well. And I was just listening to one of their podcasts and they brought two other podcasts into their show and had them actually create content for their podcast. Yeah. And that's how I discovered the memory palace, which I'd never heard of. And so this idea of, there is actually this nice cross-pollination ecosystem that comes from the goodwill of artists working together. But it's also true, and I say this to folks who say I want to do a Kickstarter or a Patreon or whatever, it's a lot of work to do a Patreon or a Kickstarter, even if you have a great idea. That piece sits on the edge of just making the great thing that you're passionate for. You have to then also go be a campaigner for 30 days or forever, right, depending on how you're running your, your show. So you're pointing to the lack of some kind of like a model that integrates that in the same way that VC has angel investors who are constantly taking risks, mm -hmm. something where that's that's baked into every kind of I th I think it, I think it's so I think it's great that there's infrastructure or that there's people who are passionate about building the things that enable others. So I think it's great that someone built Indiegogo or Kickstarter or Patreon yeah. and that those are things that generally people see as supportive and not predatory and that enables you to do your work. That's a good thing. I think it's amazing that this goodwill piece, which I do want to make sure that we talk about, is this idea that there are people that want to contribute things and share them. And there are people that when they live in that creative space, want to lift others up with them. And we see lots of that. I gave an example of how Radiotopia works together to be kind of a collective, and they all lift each other up. They point to each other's great stuff. And I love that. And I think that's also part of our natural way of being that we keep forgetting, that we keep we are encouraged to be ruthlessly individualistic, but I actually think we really like collaboration. Well, we do, but we solve problems in very specific ways mm. and we have trends that reassert themselves. And, you know, I think that this age is all about engineers and smart people and problem solvers like looking for, well, where is there a surplus of resource and where is there a deficiency of resource and where mm. are things not as smooth and how can we remove friction? And if you build an app that just puts things together, you can make a fortune. And the kind of problems that they are solving with that mentality is how can I get food delivered to my door cheaper or, mm -hmm. you know, my home when I'm on vacation is empty. Maybe I could rent it out and, and things like that. I mean, it's interesting to me. I know a lot of people who are like, you know, retired or semi-retired and who have incredible educations and careers behind them and want to make a contribution. Mm -hmm. They want to be active. They want to be important to people and they want to make a difference or contribute. And they don't even know where to start. I think like, that is a, is this, this, I remember Clay Shirky's whole idea of the cognitive surplus. It's almost mm -hmm. like this generosity surplus. I know people are working on these problems. It's just interesting to see this whole world obscenely fuel ideas around delivering pizza right. with, with tens, hundreds of millions of dollars of wild speculative money. And other things are kind of somebody's like hobby passion project app that they're trying to get off the ground. And right. 
I mean, you're seeing capitalism reassert itself and you're seeing, you know, commercial culture reassert itself. Is this not another aspect of the the forgotten dream or the dream that we're moving away from that it's just becoming more and more of these things that make sense within a very commercial culture and this other stuff doesn't have a dominant place in our lives? I mean, I, I think if your goal is profit, then you're going to go where profit is. And certainly that's that's what we're seeing coming out of Silicon Valley, right? Like Silicon Valley doesn't care about poor people. And if you look at what they choose to where they choose to create markets and what businesses they choose to create, you know, now I'm going to get 10 emails from people who are saying, you know, well, but what about this startup? But it's a thousand to one startups that are targeting a market of people who are low or medium income. It's people who are middle upper income that are targeted by startups. Yeah. Hands down. You know, that's where the interest goes and there's no, there's no incentive for them to do otherwise. I mean, at one point in time, the idea of user generated content sounded like, oh yeah, like as if in some wonderful utopia, people are going to contribute all of their own thoughts and photos and, but they do that now. We actually taught people a a whole new behavior Mm -hmm. of sharing their thoughts and feelings and photographs and opinions with the world, but that only happened through a commercialized mechanism. Yeah. You know, who else was going to do it? Yeah. Where was it going to come from? Okay. Here's the real dystopian part. I mean, so maybe we can rescue gets, from the from the embers of darker. this. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think it does because you know it's sort of abstract. I take your point totally that the internet is real life. Mm-hmm. We live online as much as anywhere else. That's fine. That's true. When you talk about the public sphere and you include the internet in that, that's an abstract idea to a lot of people still. But the internet is real life, right? The internet of things and the absolute destruction of the line between what happens on our screens and what happens on our streets is being made manifest in the city of Toronto. Yes, it is. And we are embracing it. We are embracing it. Are we? Well, (laughs) are we? On a governmental level, we are. Our government is just hugging Google tight. And we have Mm. this thing where governments just love. And I think the first time I met you is when you were working for Mayor David Miller and he was announcing his open data thing, which I don't think came to much, but we can debate that another time. Um, Right now in the city of Toronto, Google has the Sidewalk Labs thing and everybody has got stars in their eyes about how wonderful it'll be to have this Jetsons neighborhood of the future. And the fact that we are allowing a private company to play this dominant, like designing a space for us to live our lives. And I believe own license, I don't even know. I don't even know what the relationship is between Google and us and the data mm-hmm. uh, and the suggestion of this is how we're gonna live in the future and, and that the whole city and every city will be a yeah. Google Sidewalk Labs. You are involved with this project. Um, I've been asked to be on an advisory panel. Okay. Uh, so uh, Sidewalk, TO is putting together an advisory with uh, Ann Kavukian uh, and a number of other folks to give them some advice on how to deal with these issues. So I'm assuming they've asked me because, as you mentioned, I worked on Toronto's Open Data Project. I was at Mozilla before and worked on uh, privacy issues there. And now at CC, we make the license that is the prevailing license for open data sharing. So I'm coming at this as through the lens of somebody who's been an activist for openness, who cares about open data, uh, and wants to see the public and the city get a good deal out of this. And Google wants to see their project legitimized, and your participation will help them with that. I can't imagine that they wouldn't hope for that. What are your concerns? What are you gonna? What are you gonna make sure happens? Uh, at what point would you walk away if it doesn't happen? What do you need to see? I think you're asking the right questions, which is um, we're inviting a private company to help us build a neighborhood uh, and to help us build the shape of the city. Let's right? say that again. You are inviting a private company mm-hmm. to help us build a neighborhood. Yeah, which is for what it's worth. And, and I'm not saying this to defend the project, but for what it's worth is how all the neighborhoods get built. 
it's always some big developer that comes in and builds the neighborhood. So you look at name your neighborhood these days, and it's it's a private company that mostly holds the pen, and it's the planning department that mostly gets to say no, maybe if not the OMB saying they can't. You mean when they build like a condo or something? Yeah, or when you're you know when you look at uh, City Place down by the Sky Dome, they, they're still building that whole neighborhood. That's yeah. all. It's all one developer. Or you look at the that spot of land down by Fort York. There were seven different developers who built that, um, who came in and sat in a room. I was in that room because I used to work for the deputy mayor back then. And they all sat in a room and argued over who was going to build their condo first and what street was going to go where and who got to stage what. But the city... The city just set the rules. The city got to say, this is how many streets you have to have, and this is how wide they are, and here's when you have to give them to us, and all of that. But This is a little different, though, isn't it? Oh, yes, absolutely. As I'm saying, like, yes. But the idea that the government has a relationship with a company and that that company gets to play a leading role in shaping a neighborhood is a thing that happens a lot. And we should debate whether we're okay with that, but that does happen all day long. Yeah. The thing that's much different here for me is this language around we're going to build a neighborhood from the internet up. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? I don't know. Um, I mean, I uh, I don't know because I haven't heard from them yet what that means. We're guinea pigs. They're going to study how human beings relate to a city. They're going to try to anticipate the most efficient sidewalks, the most efficient sensors so that you've got everything talking to itself. It's, it's mm-hmm. a little petri dish where all of the philosophies of the internet of things where you've got a smart city and the lights are hooked up to the traffic system and everything is actually, you know, algorithmically designed for peak efficiency. And then they'll see how it works and they'll assumedly build other cities based on their findings. Yeah, I I think there are versions of this that I get excited about and there are versions of this that terrify me. Mm -hmm. Um, When I follow the King Street pilot here in Toronto uh, and watch this factless debate about whether adding streetcars to King Street has helped to hurt the businesses. I think, wouldn't it be great if somebody actually knew the foot traffic and there was data that was being shared from the businesses about their revenues? And so I could stop listening to ignorant city councilors slag a project with no data behind them. And we could actually just move on to saying, did the pilot work or did the pilot not work? But and you so did the, see the ice sculpture of the middle finger, though. I totally did. It was really great. Yeah. yeah. And amazing that they were able to pay for so many of those after their revenues were so depressed by the lack of foot traffic. <laughs> it's just such a lousy restaurant. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, my point is, there's a version of this where the public gets something that we want and that helps us do a better job of building the public realm with data. In exchange... Well, I don't know. So let's get to the trade-offs in a second. Okay. The other end of that is the apocalyptic scenario, which is, you know, a future where the police don't have to do carding anymore because they already know where everybody is. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to live in that future. And so I think there's a lot of really difficult questions to ask about not just who gets the data, but do we collect this at all? And if we collect it, how do we collect it? And how long do we keep it? We don't talk nearly enough about data destruction. Uh, mostly we just keep data forever. Um, and then who gets it? Um, and not just who gets it, you know, do the governments get it, but do we get it? The public get it. And, you're you're and the, asking policy questions, but the policy, the policy is determined by the design, right? Like yeah. if they are, 
you know how inference works with data. I mean, like they will be able to pinpoint individuals. And there's like so many different data points they could use to very specifically pinpoint individuals. The fact that this little futuristic project will collect that data in any form, whether they delete it or not, or whatever the licensing is of it, or whatever the rules, whatever the policy you write after the fact, yep. that it exists at all yep. means that it eventually will be used for that. Yeah. I'm going to tell you something that's going to make you sad. You already live in that future. Because I don't know if you have an iPhone, but I have an Android phone and, yeah. and like you already live in that future. And so there's a part of this that is like, if you don't like the fact that your data is being collected, man, join the club. We have jackets and like, let's have that conversation. But it's not it's not just this project that is the scary dystopia you might live in. We already live in that scary dystopia. You're already being tracked and your phone already knows and discloses more about you than you would like. But your whereabouts about... I mean, we've all read the stories, right? Everything from, you know, the whereabouts of, you know, military operations because some guy goes for a run and turns on his tracker. You know, all of this stuff is already happening. Um, does this make it worse? Maybe. Definitely if we do it badly. Um, and so I, I don't want to be part of that. But I definitely want to take the opportunity to force those conversations. You know, the, one of the things we hear a lot about is, you know, privacy by design in this language of um, de-anonymization or, you know, so that, you know, we're going to chop that data up so that no one will ever know it was you. Yeah. There's more than enough research, including a really bright researcher at MIT that I met with about a year ago, who with two or three data points can, with over 90% accuracy, tell you whatever you need to know about that person. Yeah. So there isn't anonymous data. It's not possible. So we need to think about whether we collect it at all. And if we collect it, who gets it and for what. So on what level are you advising Google in the city? Are you in, are you advising them on the level of what they collect or policy as to what they do with it? Are, you, I mean, so, are they going to give you a say on how they build this city of the future? I think they're going to let me sit in a room with a bunch of other smart people and advise them. So like, I don't get a say. I'm not writing any policy. We're an advisory group, which is we're there to raise these questions. And, and if they get it wrong, I'll say that too. Like we're not bound by some confidentiality agreement that I can't say what what I think. And I wouldn't agree to that anyway. So that's one thing you'd walk away uh, on the basis of anything yeah, else? I, that, I don't I don't work for Google, right? Uh -huh. I, and I wanted to do this because I live here and this is my city and I choose to be here uh, and I care about how this works. So yeah, the guinea pig thing is true. You know, Toronto's going to be in the fishbowl for the world on this if we choose to do it. And so we should do it right. So my hope is to raise those questions and then uh, you know, a lot of very smart people have already done a lot of work. There's already uh, this big activist community of folks who have been asking these questions. Last night I was uh, reading this like huge 20 page Google doc that they put together about all the questions they want asked. Uh, and they're good questions. They're asking about, you know, how is this data going to be used and why would we collect this in the first place? And, you know, my approach to this is um, how do we make sure that what we do is for the public interest? Um, which is what we're supposed to do. That's what the Toronto Planning Department is supposed to do, and that's what City Council is supposed to do. And I think you know, my hope is that as a citizen advisor that I can help them do that too. Last question. Yeah. Blockchain's going to solve everything, right? All of our worries here? Absolutely. Can I tell you about my new blockchain startup? Seriously? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> Take care. That is your Canada Land. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. 
I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. We publish our news stories at CanadaLandShow.com. There is a new episode of CanadaLand Commons up this Tuesday. There is a great episode of The Imposter that came out last week. It is all about improv comedy. Our crowdfunding site is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. This show was produced by Ali Graham. Syndication is by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. And if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.